0: Well, this morning begins the first week of Advent. And Advent means coming or arrival. It's the time that Christians throughout the world focus on the arrival of Jesus. His arrival as a baby. His arrival into our hearts by faith. And His future glorious second arrival. At our church during Advent this year, we're going to be doing a series called The Songs of Christmas. And each week we'll pair themes from a beloved Christmas hymn with passages from the book of Isaiah. Before I read our passage this morning, which is going to come from Isaiah chapter 11, let me mention one thing that Jesus said that helpfully orients us to the Old Testament book of Isaiah, really the whole Old Testament, but especially the book of Isaiah. In John chapter 5, verse 39, Jesus said to a bunch of religious leaders, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. But it is they that bear witness about me That phrase, the Scriptures, refers to the Word of God written before the coming of the Messiah, which we call the Old Testament. It's the first 80% of the Bible. Good job, Jesus says to these religious leaders, for paying attention to the Bible. But if in your reading of it, you don't see me, then you're not reading it properly. Because the whole Bible points to me, says Jesus. Admittedly, some passages in the Old Testament, it's more difficult to see the way in which they point to Jesus. But then there are other passages, wonderful, glorious passages where the way they point to Jesus, the glory in which they point to Jesus is just right there on the surface. Isaiah chapter 11 is one of those. Follow along with me as I read the first nine verses. And then we'll pray that God would be our teacher. The word of the Lord that came to the prophet Isaiah. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. And the wean child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not herd or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord. As the waters cover the sea. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Would you join me in prayer as we begin to study it together? Heavenly Father, when we sing and when we pray, O come, O come, Emmanuel, we join the chorus of believers not only throughout the world today, but throughout time. Lord, as we look at Isaiah chapter 11 and this word spoken so many years ago, May you encourage our hearts and bring us face to face with the glory of the Messiah in His first coming, and as we await His second. In Christ's name, we pray. Amen. You've probably had many conversations in your life uh, where you only hear part of the conversation, and. That gets confusing. You, know, you walk into a room and people are talking and something's already begun and you walk in and you realize if they don't slow down, I'm not going to, I'm just not going to get it. I'm always going to be on the outside. And so as we pick up the book of Isaiah, I want to make sure we slow down here at the start and make sure we have the proper context because seeing the glory of this passage and the greatness of the Messiah is contingent upon knowing something of what's happening. So let's talk about the context of Isaiah for a bit, since we'll be in the book this morning and then for the next four weeks. In the opening few lines from the book of Isaiah, as is the pattern in many of the prophetic books in the Bible, we're given a statement of the prophet's own family connections, his geographic connections and a list of the kings who ruled during his ministry. So in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1, we read this. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. All of those details are significant, Those details tell a story. They give insights into the political and spiritual milieu in which Isaiah inhabited. Just like if I mentioned President Kennedy, President Trump, or Washington, or Lincoln. Those names tell a story. And as we pull together the dates, this list of the Judean kings, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah... It tells us that Isaiah's ministry was a long one. As you read the book carefully, you notice that his ministry even extended into the terrible reign of King Manasseh, Hezekiah's son. So when you stack up these dates, the tenure of his prophetic ministry began in something like 740 BC and went all the way at least through 681 BC, so something like 60 years That's measured from chapter 6, verse 1, the year King Uzziah died, which I'll bring up in a moment, to a verse like chapter 37, 38, which speaks of a foreign king named Sennacherib. A lot happened during these years. There are a few moments of peace and prosperity, but on the whole, there was turmoil. Especially amongst the surrounding nations. In fact, in 721 B.C., so, maybe a third of the way into Isaiah's ministry, the northern kingdom of Israel. So Israel is in two kingdoms at this time. The northern kingdom of Israel is taken away into captivity. You I mean, just think about that. Be I mean, like Isaiah prophesying here in Pennsylvania and Canada comes down and grabs New York and carries them away. It's a big deal, right? It's not always possible to discern Exactly the event in the background of every single snippet of prophecy with Isaiah. But it would seem that from chapter 7 through 11, uh, there are a few details that give us a little more context in particular about what's going on. They occur in the reign of Ahaz. Before that thing I just mentioned with the northern kingdom being taken away. Before that, Ahaz is reigning. Actually, Ahaz reigned through that time, but before the northern kingdom's taken away, Assyria is the big dog on the block. So Assyria is kind of over here, and then Syria, which at the time is different than Assyria. Syria' is above the northern kingdom of Israel, and then there's the southern kingdom of Israel, where Isaiah's is prophesying, and King Ahaz, Ahaz is ruling. And Assyria is the big dog on the block. and so Syria and the northern kingdom try and get the southern kingdom to team up together so that they can fend off Assyria together. So three against one. And that puts Ahaz in a bind because Isaiah is prophesying and saying, just trust the Lord. Don't make alliances with these other nations. But he didn't. Ahaz cozies up with Assyria, paying a huge tribute to them, which puts this people of God in servitude to Assyria. It's difficult for the people of God to be the people of God when the world is calling the shots. I think these are the events in the background of our passage. So I say all of this to point out that the people of God were fragile. Their kingdom, which once looked like a thriving forest, was being chopped to the ground. And among the people of God there was infighting and idolatry and outside her borders there's wars and rumors of wars and massive cultural shifts. And what does this have to do with anything? Well, the people of God were tempted to use the means of the world, alliance with Assyria, to solve their problems rather than trusting in God. And when you put it like that, it all sounds very contemporary, doesn't it? Before we go back to Isaiah chapter 11, and we see how wonderfully breathtaking the promises are that are made there, let me read another famous, or I shouldn't say another one, a, a very. this is a famous passage from Isaiah. It comes from chapter 6, and it gives the call of ministry of Isaiah, or call, Isaiah's call into ministry. I think it will be helpful to read for a few reasons. Chapter 6, we read this, verses 1 through 8. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple. Above Him stood the seraphim. It's a type of angel, apparently. Each had six wings, With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, Lord of armies. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one seraphim flew to me, having his in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I. Send me. This all sounds so lofty and glorious and fearful and terrifying and gracious and awesome. Isaiah sees mighty angels unable to look at the Lord because He's so holy. And yet, they're singing with such volume that it shakes this heavenly temple. Then Isaiah sees his sin, and God symbolically atones for it with a burning coal. Then God calls for a missionary. He calls for a prophet to go to his people. And Isaiah jumps up with his hands in the air and says, Here, send me, send me. Do you know what happens next? (laughs) I didn't read it. But God tells Isaiah to preach. He sends him to preach. And he says, you're going to preach to a people that won't hear, they won't understand, and they won't turn and repent. You preach, Mr. Isaiah, but there'll be no revival. Not yet, anyway. So in verse 11, Isaiah responds, well, how long do I have to do that? It's a very honest passage. He says, like, well, how long for that? And God answers that this will happen until cities are burned to the ground, until the metaphorical forest that was God's people becomes nothing more than a dead stump in the ground. Chapter 6, verse 13. Which all sounds pretty hopeless, doesn't it? But there's more to the book of Isaiah than chapter 6, a lot more. And the more that God says to his people is really good news. Like really, really good news. So with that context in mind, let's go to the second point in the sermon. I want to take up this question. How great is the Messiah? And when I ask the question, how great is the Messiah? I want you to have in mind A certain, similar-sounding question. A father might ask his daughter, a daughter who's just gotten in trouble, Sweetie, how much do I love you? She looks down at her feet, shrugs, and the father bends over and Puts his thumbs on her cheeks and says, sweetie, how much do I love you? And then he spreads his arms as wide as he can. And he says, I love you this much. Isaiah 11, 1 through 9 is God saying, look up, daughter. I love you this much. Or as the way I phrased it in the sermon outline, how great is the Messiah? He's this great and this great and this great. Look again at verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. You see that word stump there in verse 1? Does that not feel electric, given the context of chapter 6 verse 13, that the people of God were going to become a stump? The picture of the royal family tree was of something that grew up tall and strong and became this forest. And yet something went wrong or lots of things went wrong and this tree became diseased and the fruit of the tree was poisonous and it was killing God's people and it was bringing shame upon the owner of the tree. So the only thing to be done was to cut it down. And anybody who would have walked by if they saw it at all just would have seen a dead hunk of wood in the ground. How great is the Messiah that from a dead hunk of wood there'll be this little shoot or twig. Though it seems small and insignificant, fragile, baby like. This shoot will be the means of giving life to the people of God. This shoot will become a branch which will become a tree again and that tree will bear good fruit. And fruit isn't merely edible Fruit is sweet. Fruit tastes good. From a dead stump, God will raise up the life-giving Messiah. Oh, church. You may feel as though the work of God in your life has many obstacles stacked against it. And it does. But so did the twig from the stump of Jesse. Keep going in verses 2 through 5. How great is the Messiah. Listen to these verses again. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And speaking of the fear of the Lord. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. Two main pictures emerge here in this section. The first picture is the special connection of the Messiah to the Lord. We're told that the Spirit of the Lord will rest upon Him. Intermittently, the Spirit of God would come upon certain leaders in the Old Testament, say a Moses or a Joshua, even a Samson or a David. But the one promised here is so great that the Spirit will rest upon him. That's not intermittent, fleeting language. Which is good, because unlike so many of the kings before him, this Messiah won't be acting on his own. He won't be rogue. Instead, he'll be cooperating with the Spirit. The Spirit will be cooperating with him. And what's the result of all this spirit language? We're told wisdom, understanding, might. In other words, the Messiah will be one who is fully equipped to do anything and everything that's called upon him to do. He's not held back or diminished in any way. Which leads to the second picture that emerges from these verses. There's this line in here about not judging by what he sees or what he hears. And you might think, but wait, 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 wait. Don't we want a judge to do this? Don't we want a judge to judge by what he sees and hears? The Messiah is so great that when he adjudicates with the gavel in his strong, mighty hand, he's able to penetrate to the heart of the issue and judge with perfect righteousness. We should want judges who judge by what they see and hear, because that's about as good as we can hope for in this life. But the greatness of the Messiah that's spoken of here in this passage is that he's not limited in the same way. And the result is that the poor and the meek, who are often not fairly represented in court, will have the protection of this Messiah. And we read of the Messiah being able to kill the wicked with the breath of his lips. What does that mean? He <laughs> just needs some mouthwash? <laughs> right? I mean to be silly. I mean, to just eat too many onions. I mean, what, the breath of his mouth—like that's pretty potent stuff. What's going on? I'm just being silly. But in Isaiah's own day, and in our own, enormous amounts of money and time and energy and lives are spent in keeping wickedness at bay. It takes a lot of work to carry the one ring into the fires of Mordor. And think of the laws that we pass and the officers who try their best to enforce them. And think of the military that we assemble and the battles we try and fight. So much energy, so much effort, so much loss of life. And how great is the Messiah? This great. That one day he'll topple evil the way I could stack up dominoes and blow them over. That easy. Look at the last four verses, six through nine. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and a little child shall lead them. So ordinarily it would take a man to grab a, a calf and lead a calf. But here, a child, put a rope on it. The child walk it. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. And the wean child shall put his hand on the adder's den. Could there be anything ordinarily that would be more scary as a parent? They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord. As the waters cover the sea. My previous church was in Tucson, Arizona. We had a beautiful courtyard at that church. And one Saturday night after Saturday night service, some kids were playing in the trees and rocks, and all of a sudden there was yelling. And a young child named Lily, who did not get bit, noticed she was playing right next to a coiled rattlesnake. She almost sat on it. I won't spend any time, hardly any time at least, talking about this last chunk of scriptures, except to point out the overarching point. The greatness of the Messiah pictured here is such that when He comes to do His work on earth, He'll do it in such a way that those who once seemed like vicious, deadly enemies, Assyria, will become friends. And when the Messiah does His work, it will be as though a little child could play with cobras because the sting is gone and there's nothing to fear. Sounds a lot like Paul's eruption of praise in First Corinthians 15 when he says, O oh death, where is your sting? Because of the work of the Messiah. And the knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the seas. Think about that. Where there's sea, there's water. And so where there's land, there's going to be the knowledge of the Lord. That's pervasive language. The knowledge of God under the full rule and reign of the Messiah will not be intermittent. Not be pocketed. It won't be sprinkled or scattered unevenly. It'll be coated thick. Thick. Throughout the world. And what comes to mind. I don't know if you've ever been to Krispy Kreme. A donut place. I know they don't really have them around here that much. But the little donut. When they go through the little conveyor belt. They go under the frosting waterfall. Right? And every square inch of that donut's covered in frosting. That's the way the knowledge of the Lord is going to gloriously cover the earth. I think. <laughs> and what's meant here by knowledge. That's not awareness, like the awareness of the Lord will cover the earth. No, this is a nearness, an intimacy, a love. The knowledge that covers the earth is the waters that covers the seas is going to be the knowledge of the father wiping away the tears of his daughter and saying, look up, daughter, I love you this much. And everyone's going to look back to their father and say, yeah, dad, I know. I know you love me that much. Look how great the Messiah is. He loves us this much. So we come to my final question. What sort of people ought we to be in light of this Messiah? Very briefly, two answers. We ought to be a people who long to be like the Messiah. And we ought to be a people who long for the Messiah to come again. Here's what I mean first. If our Messiah is characterized by truth and justice and protecting the poor and meek, ought we, the people of the Messiah, ought ought we not to be characterized by these same things? I think so. If the Messiah's highest pleasure is not in doing His own will, but living in the fear of the Lord, then ought we not to be a people who have as our highest pleasure... Obeying the Lord. I think so. If our Messiah is not swayed by the whims of people and culture. And if he's not enamored with the money and the status that the world has to offer. And if he doesn't just do what seems right to everybody else. But he actually knows what's right, and he knows what's true. Shouldn't we be a people who don't give a rip whether or not the views we hold, if they're from God, are out of step with culture? I think so. So that's the answer, one answer to the question of what sort of people we ought to be. We ought to be people like our Messiah. Messiah seems to make sense. We'd strive to be like Him. The Apostle Peter, writing to a bunch of Christians, he, he, he says, one place, chapter 2, he says, quote, uh, that Christ gave us an example so that you would follow in His footsteps. The Apostle Paul tells us in his letter to the church in Ephesus to be imitators of God, to follow in the pattern of Jesus. So that's one answer. But I want to end By mentioning what I believe is the main takeaway from this passage. We ought to be people who long for the Messiah to come again. To say it differently. We ought to be those who long for the second coming of Jesus. There's a fancy. But I think helpful. uh, Phrase that comes up. When reading some passages from the Old Testament prophets. It's called prophetic foreshortening. Uh, it shows up in seminary textbooks, so you do not need to remember it. <laughs> but you'll probably remember the f- imagery that's often used to describe the phrase prophetic foreshortening mountain ranges. I mentioned Tucson earlier. Let me mention it once more. When you land in Tucson Airport, you're in the south part of the city. And if you land in the south part of the city, and then you turn and you look north, you're going to see the Catalina Mountain Range. And it's a long ways away, and it looks like one giant mountain. But if you were near the airport to go through some streets, and then you get on Interstate I-10, and you start to drive towards Phoenix about two hours away north, sort of brings you alongside the Catalina Mountain Range. And so you're going north. You realize after about 30 minutes... That this giant mountain range isn't one mountain range, it's actually many. With the biggest mountain being separated by a huge valley between them and Mount Lemmon's there at the back. Almost 10,000 feet tall. What does that have to do with the book of Isaiah? From where Isaiah stood, south of the Messiah, so to speak. His prophecy about the Messiah had several mountain range peaks to it. And from where he stood, he just speaks of them as though they're one giant mountain. But as time marches on, what we see is there's many ranges. Prophetic foreshortening. Some of them are fulfilled in the first coming of Jesus. As he comes as a baby who then grows up and dies for the sins of his people. He's born... As a baby, which means he's fragile like a twig or a stump. And Jesus is from the family line of Judah. More specifically, from the family line of David. More specifically, from Jesse, David's father. Who's mentioned in the passage and in the song, O Come Emmanuel. And in Luke chapter 4, we read of Jesus saying that the spirit of the Lord rests upon him. So things are true in this first peak of his coming. This first Mountain of the first coming of Jesus, and we celebrate this at Christmas because it's a real mountain. But there are other aspects of Isaiah chapter eleven that might have begun, such as the Messiah's ministry beginning to bear fruit. But there are others that will not be fulfilled until the second coming. Does the knowledge of the Lord cover the earth as the water covers the seas? Not yet. Has the Messiah killed the wicked with the breath of his mouth? No. But we read in one of Paul's letters to the church in Thessalonica that, quote, the Lord will kill the evil one with the breath of his mouth and bring him to nothing by the appearance of his coming. There is a day. In other words, there's another mountain ridge yet to climb. Therefore, in so much as Advent is about celebrating the birth of the Savior, which it is, it's also about longing for the second coming. When the work He began, He will see to completion. Which is why we sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel, in a minor key. Emmanuel means God with us. We long for God to be with us. He's here with us now. But what he is now will come and be greater still. The second to last verse in the Bible goes like this. Book of Revelation chapter 22 verse 20. And he who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. To which John adds, Amen. Come Lord Jesus. In other words, we still sing, O come, come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appears. O come, the rod of Jesse, free thy own from Satan's tyranny and give them, give us, full victory over the grave. Would you join with me in prayer as we long for that glorious day? Heavenly Father, I pray that the main takeaway from this passage and this sermon and this service and this Christmas season would be a gospel-infused wonder over the Messiah. Lord, it wouldn't be a burden or a struggle to go tell people about how awesome you are, because we feel that. And we see it, and we taste it. Lord, but we also pray that the work you've begun in our lives and the work you've begun in this world you would bring to completion and your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray these things in Christ's name.